Hardware to Save a Planet explores the technical innovations that are giving us hope in the fight against climate change. Each episode focuses on a specific climate challenge and explores an emerging physical technology solution with the person bringing it into reality. I'm your host, Dylan Garrett. Hello and welcome to Hardware to Save a Planet. I'm very excited to have Adrian Pajas here today. He's the co-founder and CEO of Morpho, which is on a mission to enable large-scale reforestation for a positive climate, biodiversity, and social impact. They do this using drones, and I'm really looking forward to learning more about their process. I'll share just a couple stats to illustrate why this is important. We lose 5 million hectares of forest per year. I didn't really know how to visualize that, so I looked it up. It's roughly the size of Costa Rica or a little bigger than Denmark. So that's a lot of forest lost every year. Just from a climate change perspective, deforestation is responsible for somewhere between 12 and 20% of greenhouse gas emissions every year. And of course, forests are important for other things like water and air filtration, uh, biodiversity and erosion prevention. To introduce Adrian quickly, prior to founding Morpho in 2021, he founded, grew and sold a company called Fairbird, which was focused on reducing plastic use by providing natural and biodegradable products. He's also our first guest joining us from France. So Adrian, thanks so much for being here. It's really an honor to have you. Excellent, Dylan. Very happy to be here and to represent the French ecosystem for the first time. All right. Yeah. Yeah. And I love asking this when I have guests from a new part of the world. What is that French ecosystem like? How would you characterize it in the climate tech scene? So I would say that in the entrepreneurship space, it's a very dynamic space. We have really like a lot of companies and a good energy there with a lot of innovations. So very positive. On the climate aspects, I mean, it's new like everywhere in the world. So we are working on it, but I see many, many, many companies being created. So it's very, very positive, I would say, in the end. And you founded two sustainability-focused companies in your career. I'd love to hear a little bit about what your path was to putting so much of your time and energy into that area. What's kind of driving you? I think it's a very good question, but the answer is very basic. It's just that I was like, I'm not going to work like almost every day in my life. At 10 to 12 hours per day, if I don't do something I believe in, and if I don't tackle, try to tackle, because I'm, we have to stay humble, try to tackle a, a big problem of our times. And one of the biggest problems of our times is, uh, is climate change and all its consequences. So I want to dedicate my work to this, which explains everything. And I'm doing it every day. So, but I don't know if I succeed. <laughs> we will see in the future. Yeah. In the whole world of climate change, how have you come to focus on what Morpho is doing? What's been your process to figure that out? So basically the process was like, so I had created my, my first companies and it was very interesting. And I had like one of my best friends who also had created a, a company and uh, him and his brother, who are now my two co-founders, were really well aware of uh, the problem of restoration and ecosystem degradation as uh, they were coming from French Guiana. So French Guiana, to explain to everyone, is a part of France in South America, and it's basically only Amazon rainforest. So they were living there and they, they saw what was the challenge of uh, restoring this ecosystem on uh, Hoi Potot, was it? And so they came to me and we tried to really think about it. 
And from this, we were like, okay, it's like restoring ecosystem is a very important challenge. We really need to find new technologies and new solutions to get it to a better scale and a better quality to have the social impact and environmental impact that we want. And for us, it was a very interesting way to have impact and to have a very complete impact as forest is not only about like one particular topic, it's very uh, global and holistic vision. So it's very interesting. And this is how it started. And of course, me, I was like, it's super interesting, super challenging. And it clearly corresponds to what I want to do of my life and my days. So let's go. Let's go. This is the beginning. Yeah. I really want to hear about the specific approach you're taking, but I think it's worth a little time to just really articulate why this is an important problem and kind of the magnitude of the problem. So one thing I was curious about, we're losing so much forest a year based on that stat at the beginning. What's causing that? What are the primary causes of deforestation today? You know, I think of like forest fires and crop farming land and things like that. Yeah, of course. The main reason for deforestation is human, directly and indirectly, because like you have some factors that are like direct deforestation, such as like agricultural reasons, deforestations, or uh, for instance, industry, like mining industry deforestations, or you have like uh, wood industry deforestations. This is direct impact of our activities, but you also have, or for instance, like urbanizations. Urbanizations can be, in some cases, very important reasons. And you have indirect deforestation. And indirect deforestation is, for instance, like all the fires, the super fires that you see like during this crazy summer right now. All this is due to climate change and its climate change consequences. And this is mainly due to our activities on Earth. So almost 100% of deforestation is due to human and it's on our activities. But if I had to point out which one is the main, one of the main factors of deforestation so far, we need to be cross-checked depending on where we are on the globe and what types of forests we are talking about, of course, but it's agricultural reasons. And one of the main factors of deforestation is uh, mid-consumptions. Most of the lands that are deforested right now are deforested for crops that are used to bring food to produce meat for food for animals to produce meat. So I see. one of the leading factors of deforestation is meat consumptions. So Okay, right. I don't have the stats off the top of my head, but you hear about how much land a pound of beef requires relative to a pound of corn or something. Exactly, exactly. Got it. So that's interesting. So when you think about reforestation, is there a tension between having enough land for forests and enough land to feed our growing population? I think it's a very good question. Right now, as we are focusing like on the planet, there is like um, 2.1 billion hectares of lands that are degraded and available for restoration. Because the other part, the 1.2, is mainly like could be like, there could be like agricultural stuff and we don't want to interfere with feeding the world. So this is something very important. But still, 0.9 billion of hectares to restore is massive need of restoration. So we already have a lot of areas that we need to restore. But in fact, it's a good point. One thing that is very important is also we need, in the future, I mean, we would need to change our habits to need less percentage of lands ahead per people to feed ourselves. If we want to reduce our impact on Earth and our kind of uh, environmental print. Not only talking about carbon print, but really like uh, a soil print kind of. But this, this is, I mean, this, this is another debate, but you have the idea, of course. 
Right, right. We also have to find ways to use less land per person to feed ourselves. Exactly. I missed the stat about how much land is available for reforestation. There was something where you said 0.9 billion. So basically, we have like 2.1 billion of hectares of land that is available for restoration all around the globe. But within those 2.1 billion, only like 0.9 billion of hectares of land are considered as potentially restorable lands. And the reason is that a part of the other, of the other part of, of the hectares dedicated to agricultural reasons. So they could be restored, but we prefer to leave them to agriculture as we don't want to interfere with feeding the world. And another part is dedicated, would be dedicated to afforestation. And afforestation is to put a forest where there were not any forests before. And this is because you don't know exactly what you're going to do to the ecosystem in place if you do this. So us, we don't want to do this. And we focus on the 0.9 billion. And this part is already like huge, very huge and very challenging. Okay, got it. That's really helpful. So where you're reforesting, you're not competing with land that is available for growing food anyway. And there's still a huge, I mean, 0.9 billion Exactly. It's almost a billion hectares of land is available for reforestation that wouldn't be used for food otherwise. Exactly. That's about the size of China, just because I have this. <laughs> that's a huge area that you could <laughs> reforest. Huge. Okay. It's and that's a lot huge. of, yeah, probably a lot of trees. Exactly. Actually, that's an interesting question. Do you have a sense? Is that trillion trees or what does that mean to reforest a billion hectares? Again, it's a very good question. It's a very difficult to answer, mainly because from one ecosystem to the other ecosystem, you do not at all the same density characters of trees. If you are like in the savanna or if you are like in tropical rainforest or semi-deciduous forest, you're not going to have the same. So um, I would say like giving a number like that, we can, I mean, it's useful, but it's not completely true. Misleading. Yeah, it has some limitations, but we're basically... Yeah, it really represents a huge, huge amount of trees. Right. Okay, so it's not even that we need to be necessarily replacing forests that's being deforested every year. There's already a ton of land that we could focus on reforesting. Exactly. Yeah. And then just thinking about why, I mean, it probably sounds like an obvious question, but why is it bad to not have forests or why, why is it important to have more forest? One thing, so I mentioned all the greenhouse gas emissions stand, impact. And I actually had a question about that. Is that, is the reason it has such a big impact to greenhouse gases is, is that what, as we deforest, we're burning that matter and releasing the embodied carbon? Or how does it actually, yeah. Okay, so you have two important questions. Uh -huh. I will answer to the, to the second one and after I will come back to the first one. Okay. So about basically why it's very important to protect our forests, it's because a forest is a stock of carbon. When a tree is growing, is kept sequestrating carbon and during his whole life, the more the tree is growing, the more carbon there is in the tree. But in the end, at some point, the tree is going to die. So when the tree is dying, it's going to, of course, release a lot of carbon. And a lot of this carbon will be, by the way, in the soil. Okay. And this carbon will be useful to help other trees to grow. And when a tree falls down, another tree will be growing. So basically, the stock of carbon of your forest is going to be more or less the same. But if you deforest, or if you have a fire, it's burning, and if you don't have trees coming after, so if I deforest and there is no tree after, they just land like that for crops, there is no more carbon stocks. So there is no more carbon stocks in the biomass, so your forest 
uh, your land start to be carbon positive and the carbon in the soil, when you do crops, you have less and less carbon in the soil because the soil is getting poorer and poorer. And this is too, because you have carbon in the biomass and carbon in the soil. But basically, if forests are disappearing, all this carbon is going away. And this is why we are saying that right now, the Amazon rainforest is emitting more carbon than absorbing because there is too much fire, too much deforestation. And this is very dangerous because you get rid of the forest, all this carbon is getting in the universe. Yeah, <laughs> is emitted. And the more carbon we have, like the more uh, like fires we can have and forest depletion we can have. So it's really a bad circle. Right. This is uh, the first point. And about the, the about like the, your other questions. So basically, forests are very important. Forests and ecosystem are very important for carbon and carbon stocks, as we said. But there is a lot of more co-benefits. One of the main co-benefits is biodiversity. So for the fauna and the flora, it's a place where you can have many, many species living there. And most of those species are useful for us. So a lot of our medicals and medicines are coming from the forest or from plants. For a long time, people were also like, and nowadays there are still like 1 billion people living thanks to the forest. So they need the forest to be able to live. And it's a huge volume of people. Other reasons are that forests and trees in particular and all the ecosystems are helping to purify water. They are also helping to purify the air and they are also helping to create climate. If you don't have forests, it's going to be very difficult to have some clouds and to have some rain. And for instance, if I can give you an example, the forest, the tropical forest of the Congo Basin, creating clouds that are helping to make rains, make rain happen in Egypt and in the south of Egypt. And this is giving water to the Nile. And so in, in the end, if you are growing some crops nearby the Nile in Egypt, it's also thanks to the forest of the Congo Basin. So everything is really linked and we don't really understand what's happening. And this is very true. Like the scientific knowledge on this is, is good, but it's still uh, not enough. And so when we deforest an area, we don't really know what's going to be the consequences. This is also why we really need to protect our forest because it's uh, for people, but also for us. So just an example to give you, to tell you how important it can be. Yeah, that's a great example and, and a really good answer. I'm convinced. <laughs> to your point about we don't fully understand these things and everything is linked, is there any risk you have to be aware of when you're reforesting something to ensure you're kind of bringing it back to its natural state? Yes. Of course, of course. It's one of the main things we are thinking about when we are restoring. Because you don't want to do something wrong, but you also have to know that you don't know everything. And you will certainly not know everything because it's super complex. But you can like put in place some aspects to be certain that you are like avoiding a lot of risks when you are restoring. So one of the first is I'm only going to use native species. So species that are already there. So I'm not bringing any exotic species uh, that could disturb the ecosystem. The second thing is I'm trying to respect as much as possible the proportions of species that I'm going to put in the mix. So for instance, I'm gonna, not going to put, okay, biodiversity, but I put 90% the same species in my mix because it's not going to allow the equilibrium of the ecosystem. The third thing is also we really put an emphasis on biodiversity. Because the more biodiversity you put, the more resilience you're going to have in the ecosystem and the ecosystem is going to be able to be autonomous and regulate itself. If you don't put biodiversity, 
you're not going to attract like many animals. We are bringing all the seeds. You are not going to restore the soil properly. So your ecosystem can be endangered and you can leave space to invasive species. And this is very important because one of the main dangers for biodiversity in the world is invasive species. And this in ecosystems, also for the fauna, but also for the bacteria, for the fungi, is very broad. So you need to have this. And after, what is very important is to monitor. You need to monitor and to monitor on the long term. So that if you see that there is something going wrong for any reason, you can do something. You can intervene very fast. Okay. So can you describe your process then from kind of end to end? How does it work and how do you address all those things? Okay. Of course, I'm going to try to be uh, not too long on this one. <laughs> okay. But basically, we have someone coming to us, so a landowner or public state or companies who want to restore an area. So far, we are specialized in tropical, subtropical areas and ecosystems. They are coming to us and us, we are first doing a diagnosis of the area. The idea is to say, okay, we need to understand what is this land. Because this land is not a flat and uh, homogeneous land. You have many specificities. And from one square meter to the other square meter, the conditions can be very different. So first, we need to understand this. To understand this, we use satellite imagery, drone data, and on-site data. We also use on-site data because there is some aspects that you cannot do <laughs> and understand with drones and remote sensing. You cannot do everything. We combine all this, and then we have some algorithms that are combining this data with a catalog of species that we have already studied. So basically, we are developing knowledge about species from specific ecosystems to understand clearly how do they behave in the first state of growth, if you give that type of soil, this, this volume of compaction, if you have like this interaction with another species, if you put this microorganism in the soil. So we develop knowledge to really understand. So we have this catalog, we mix the catalog with the classification of the area, and we have planting patterns. I call them like smart planting patterns. The idea is to say, okay, on this area, I'm not going to plant like two species and the same way everywhere, because it's very different. So I'm going to have like 40, by depends of the ecosystem. But for instance, let's say 40 species, not only trees, every type of species that are useful to restore the ecosystem. And from one square meter to the other, I would not have the same density, not have exactly the same mix to readapt. When we have this, we are coming with our technology of plantations that is a bit unusual. So it's seed encapsulations, and basically we are putting seeds that we pre-germinate into capsules, capsules that allow to like foster the germination, the growth, restore the soil, and protect the seedlings during the first stage of growth. We are putting those capsules into drones, so big drones, and those drones are flying according to the planting patterns that we have realized and are planting uh, the area. We usually plant in different phases, so two to three or more phases, because we want to mimic ecological successions. So basically a forest does not appear in one day. It takes a long process and you have different types of plants and trees coming within the time. So we are planting in multiple years to really accelerate this phenomenon. And then you go to the last phase of, of this, that is monitoring. So since the very beginning, the, when we start to analyze, up to monitoring that can go up to like 30, 40 years, we monitor the area with objective data that we display on an online dashboard that is accessible to our clients and maybe one day publicly, we'll see, 
to really show like the forest growing and to explain, okay, what's the percentage of biomass that is that has evolved since the beginning? How many species do we have? What's the assessment of the biodiversity? What is the volume of carbon stocks in this area? Its evolution. The idea is to say, okay, you see the forest qualitatively, quantitatively, and us, we have feedbacks. Wow. So I have so many questions about that. <laughs> <laughs> go for it. Go for it. <laughs> There's a lot there. One thing I'm just kind of, I do a little bit of gardening and I know how hard it is. You can't just throw a seed out on the dirt, on bare dirt, and expect it to grow a plant. And I imagine we're talking about area plants that should be growing in a forested area where they have shade and water, kind of the water holding capabilities of other plants around them and stuff. And now they're in this kind of deforested area where they don't have all that support. How do you get seeds to kind of take and grow in an area like that? I imagine it's not as simple as just dropping seeds from a drone. So in fact, <laughs> it's not as simple as that. The first thing is the selection of species. So you have some species that are adapted, you, call, you can call them like pioneer species, that are able to grow in areas where there is a lot of sun, where you don't have any trees around, and where the soil is very poor. Those species are really adapted. So basically, and in the first phase of plantation, because I, I was talking about multiple phases, the first phase of plantation, we are using those species because they are very helpful. You have some species, you even have some species that are able to re-enrich the soil. Uh, you call that nitrogen-fixing species. And basically, they take the nitrogen in the air, thanks to um, a symbiosis with a bacteria in the soil, and they are able to put nitrogen in the soil. And it helps to re-enrich the soil. This is very uh, useful. So we are using so the selection of species is very important. The second thing is uh, the seed pod, the capsule. If you just put the seed like that, of course, it's not going to work. But if you pre-germinate the seed, so you activate the germination, you put the seed in an environment that really allows the growth with nutrients, with water protection, but also with microorganisms, fungi, bacteria, that will help re-enrich the soil and help the plants to grow by creating symbiosis with them. It's going to be way more, way easier for the plants. And the last thing is you need to plant the species you want at the right place. This is why the diagnosis is very important. So, okay, I have this soil in this area and I know this soil is super compacted. So I know that already like two thirds of my catalogs cannot be adapted in that kind of beyond to this soil because it's too much. But I know this species and this species are okay. They can fit there. So I plant them there. And it can be the same. Oh, yeah, I have a pollution there. It's going to be very bad. I have a high level of this metal in this area, but I have some species that are able to grow there. Or there is too much water, but I have some species. This is the idea. But in fact, if you consider everything like, okay, I just, I'm going to plant like the same mix everywhere. Of course, like the level of, um, of depth is going to be crazy. So this is really the idea. And this is why it's very important to develop knowledge about like the specific area, but also about the species. Yeah, so that site evaluation and kind of knowledge of all the species is super critical. I love this idea of pioneer species kind of coming and prepping the land for the next wave of plants to come. Yeah. This is exactly this. You have some species, very impressive. Huh? Yeah. You have some trees, it's called Cecropia trees in, uh, in French Guiana or in Brazil. As they are growing everywhere. And they are not invasive. They are not invasive at all. And thanks to them, you really have the forest getting back in areas that are 
completely anthropized. So it's kind of magic. Yeah. yeah. And when I think encapsulation or a, cap, a seed capsule, I'm thinking to me that brings to mind like a plastic capsule full of stuff. But what should we be picturing when you talk about that? When we worked at the very beginning, we thought a little bit about this. And me, as I was coming from this environment, thought a little bit, but I was, no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a good idea. No, no. So basically, it's uh, natural materials. So I cannot say exactly what it is. We have IP on this, but it's exactly what supernatural it degrades in just days. But it, the idea is to say, okay. And it is a little container full of, that has a germinated seed and like you exactly. said, some soil and nutrients exactly. and everything. And we have a, like industrial machines. We have developed machines that really allow to do this because you need to do it at scale, which is very important. Huh? Because when you want to do like hundreds of thousands of capsules, yeah, you're not going to do it by hand. But yeah, you yeah, know, it's a supernatural uh, materials and we combine different materials that, are, that have proven capacity uh, for nutrients and we put microorganisms adapted and we can put some repellent, natural repellent in some cases because you can have some birds or some ants. It really depends on the areas. So you, again, a lot is about like having the right knowledge and after, of course, the technology, but... Mm -hmm. And what's your business model? You mentioned your clients. Who are you? How do you make money? So basically, we, there's a lot of like people who want to restore uh, nowadays on Earth. So we have like public clients. So it can be states, municipalities, but we also have like a lot of private clients. So it's either like companies that need to restore for legal reason or legal purpose. So infrastructure company, energy company, extractive company. It can also be like more classic corporates, insurance or uh, banking or tech companies that want to participate to restoration projects. And it can also be like NGOs. NGOs. And the last one is carbon project developers uh, that need to restore. So all those people want to restore areas, engage themselves in restoring or make the business, depending on what they do. But the only thing is that when you say, okay, I want to restore, no, you need to do it. And it's, this is very challenging for scale, for the quality, for the monitoring. And us, we are providing them with the service. So what we usually do is we, that we do reforestation as a service. If we have to talk with a tech, mm -hmm. tech world uh, <laughs> business model, but yes, it's a reforestation as a service. So there is a fee per hectare for the restoration and we take charge of it. And after you can have like more or less monitoring. We have some companies where we are like us doing a big diagnosis because they really need to understand the project and uh, it's a high volume project, but yeah, reforestation as a service business model. What about selling carbon credits? So basically, I think like it's two different jobs. So like us, our job and our main challenge is to say, okay, how can we provide everyone with a solution for restoring tropical ecosystems in the best, like, the best way possible? And provide technology, to develop the technologies that will allow eventually in other places in the world to use our technology to do restoration. And there, there is some people that are developing carbon projects and we are working for them. So it's like... I see. Some of your clients are selling carbon credits. Yes, exactly. But and us, we are, to us, we are like putting a guarantee. The idea is, is to say, okay, you are selling carbon credits, which can be very useful as it's, if you, we don't have carbon credits, like a great part of uh, restoration will not be financed, I think so. But it's also very important to say, okay, we are bringing quality and transparency and we are bringing biodiversity, social impact, environmental impact. 
And it's very it's super difficult to do this. So you need companies like us to really provide this because if you're a develop, carbon project developer, it's going to be challenging to do something like that. And us, so far, we already have a, a lot of work to do. So we are more like a supplier, but a, a very uh, scientific <laughs> supplier. Right. Yeah, and it sounds like your business is viable even without carbon credits. There's lots of demand for reforestation from all these other categories of your customers. Exactly. Yeah. You mentioned your encapsulation machine, and I'm always interested to hear about the hardware aspects of these things. I'd love to hear kind of where are you innovating in hardware or technology just generally, and what does that look like? So when we started to develop our technology of encapsulations, we did this with French public laboratories and with scientists. And now we have like very important collaboration in France, but also in Brazil with uh, many universities. And so when you start that kind of thing, you innovate, you start by hand. So you don't have any machine. It's, of course, because it's in a laboratory. So why would you need to scale? But of course, we knew that the idea was the scale, not only the quality, but the scale. And after we were like, okay, so we have this, we have this innovation, but now we need the machine (laughs) to be able to produce this. But it doesn't exist. So we need to invent something. And we need to invent something that is very adapted to the conditions in which we are going to use them. Because, and you're going to understand, now we have like two types of machines. We have some machines that don't move. They are based in at some points. And we have, and this is with what we studied, and we are still using them and improving them. It's mobile machines. It's to say, okay, you call me in the middle of the Amazonian forest. I'm going to come with my machine. Okay, you call me in Gabon. We went to Gabon. I'm going to come with my machine. No problem. So we need something very small very rustic in some way, but also that can answer on it. And so this was very challenging, but to give you an idea, this mobile machine, we put this in like two boxes, two little boxes that you can take in a plane with you. It's super light. You assemble, we assemble this like on sites. We bring like all the materials with us and we put this in the machine. The machine is working. So it's, and it's making like seed pods continuously. So this was very, very challenging. And now we are developing, so we have developed and we are still developing some machines that are way bigger when you don't need to move to really get to a more important scale. But this part, this hardware part is very, I mean, I would be very interesting in like going into details and give you everything that it's not possible. But this part is very cool, very challenging. And when you understand that you need to develop a machine, a specific machine, something that doesn't exist, it's a funny moment. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Those are the moments I live for, though. Those are the fun, <laughs> the fun engineering challenges. Yeah. Why is it important to have a machine? Why not ship capsules rather than shipping, bring the machine to the local area? So you have two reasons. First reasons is that you cannot transport seeds, native seeds, from one country to the other like that. Okay. So basically, you, have, you cannot. It's, it's forbidden. So it's a good reason, I think. And the, the, the second reason is more a biological reason is that seeds, depending on the seed, but seeds, you have some seeds that cannot be stored. They need to be planted directly. And you have some seeds that you can store and the viability of the seeds can go up to six months to like 100 years. Most of them are more like one year, two years or more. So if you want to take them, I don't know, if you are in, like you are, you have a project in Brazil, you take them to France. And after you encapsulate them and you have to take them back to Brazil, 
I think none of your capsules are, are going to work because all the seeds are going to be dead. And the other reason is that for like most of the seeds we use, we activate the germination. So you, when you activate the germination, also again, it depends on the species. So you have some species, you have like three days. You have some species, you have 20 days before you really have like a seedling. But anyway, you cannot wait too much. So this is very important to be very local. And the last reason is that when you are very local, you have like, I mean, it's, uh, it's, you have more flexibility. It's really way better for your project. This is the reasons. Mm -hmm. Is there any kind of specific engineering challenge that came out of building those machines that you could share? I would say like the first challenge was the timing. Because you are like, okay, I need this machine. I have some new projects coming and I need to have my perfect machines. And you are using it and you discover that oh, this is not working or this is not working <laughs> or I need to improve this. And you're like, okay, but I only have like three months before the other projects. So I need to activate everyone to find solutions. So the timing is very challenging. And I think this is very, something very difficult. And the other reasons is, okay, as we needed something very rustic, we wanted to say, okay, we don't want something with a lot of electronics. Because if you are in the middle of the Amazonian forest and you don't, you will not find the, like uh, something to change your microprocessor in the middle of the forest. So, and you cannot bring everything to you. So it needs to be very basic. And how do you do something very efficient, very basic? It's super complex. It's like, a, you know, when you paint and you paint too much on your table and you're like, okay, I need to paint less, but to do something very beautiful. How do I do? It's exactly the same. This is super challenging. Mm -hmm. The simplest solutions are often the hardest ones. Exactly. This is the idea. Yeah. I'm curious to think about the future of Morpho. And you mentioned there's almost a billion hectares that could be reforested. And I actually, there's this stat from the UN I didn't share earlier that they actually think a billion hectares must be reforested by 2030. And at our current rate, we're only on track to hit like 5% of that target. How do you wrap your head around the scale of that problem? And what do you think Morpho will do to relative to that target? And what does Morpho need to look like as a company to get there? Us, the goal of Morpho by uh, 2030 is to restore 1 million hectares. So if you compare 1 million hectares to like what should be done, it's clearly not enough. So, but it's already a huge volume. It's very, already very challenging uh, given the time that we have. So basically, like how I see things for us is like there's an increasing need and we really want to provide solutions that could be like either biological on the knowledge development, as, I mean, the development of this knowledge and to say, okay, this is how we can restore those ecosystems. But we also want to provide tools that can be used in other ecosystems where we will not be deployed so that other people can restore. And we also, and I think this is what is very important, is that we are also saying that it's not kind of a market where you have like a winner take it all. It doesn't work like that. It's a market where you are like, okay, the more we are, the better. And this is the idea. We also want to say to other people, to other companies or individuals, go for it. It's such a big challenge. We will need everyone on board. And us, we are here to bring knowledge, tools, to deploy projects, more and more projects, to hire a lot of people, so of course. But even though we are like the best, even though we are the best and we do everything perfectly, which I hope it will not be enough. So this is a, yeah. <laughs> I mean, from a market perspective, it's kind of interesting. 
from an ecological perspective, it's kind of a little bit boring, but this is the truth. <laughs> yeah, I love that about kind of these climate-related markets is there's there just definitely seems to be this attitude. There's plenty of opportunity to grow. You know, there's the need is so much bigger than anyone of us can address. So we're kind of all in it together. Clearly. Yeah. I have a few questions that I like to close with every guest. How optimistic are you about the future of the planet and why? My answer is I'm not really optimistic because I think it's going to be very challenging. And we have like clearly no idea. Like when I was saying, like we don't understand all the links. So this is exactly the same. We don't understand the magnitude of everything. So I cannot be optimistic. But what I believe is that still, it's very important to do everything, to adapt, to avoid, and to say, okay, I'm not going to lay in my bed. <laughs> I need to, I mean, I'm alive. Uh, life is cool. So let's go for it. Let's fight a little bit. So this is, I think this is the idea. And so it's still an optimistic message. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. I feel that way sometimes myself. Who is another company or individual doing something to address climate change that's inspiring you? So. I'm very impressed by two types of people. Scientists are very impressive. And I have one scientist in Brazil. Her name is uh, Fatima Pina Rodriguez. And she's very impressive because she has been working on restoration for 30 years, fighting for it. And no one was listening too much. And no, no, people are listening. But hopefully she has been working for 30 years. Otherwise, we would be in such a bad situation. So thanks to her. I'm also very impressed by uh, some climate activists in France. Her name is Camille Etienne, and she has been dedicating her life to try to raise awareness about this issue and uh, make new laws. And I think some stuff are moving thanks to her and our dynamism. So I'm like, uh, let's keep pushing. Awesome. Yeah, those are really good shout outs. Thanks. What advice do you have for someone not working in climate today who wants to do something to help? <laughs> someone working climate. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I think, yeah, as I said, there's tons of work. So, um, but what is very challenging and is, that, is that there isn't that many climate startups so far and climate companies. It's not like I would lie if I said like we are plenty, we are not plenty. So, but still like show your motivations and support. Also, as an individual, we can change a lot of things. I mean, uh, deforestation, I, I explained what was the main reason. So we can change a lot of things. And it's not that hard. So I think a lot of stuff can start by that. Even without dedicating your life to climate, you can just switch some behaviors and it will have a great impact. So I would encourage everyone to, <laughs> to think about it. Awesome. Well, Adrian, it was really fun talking to you. I'm both inspired and fascinated by the work you're doing. I'd love to see your encapsulation machine someday. I mean, Come. <laughs> I will show you with pleasure for sure. <laughs> cool. Thanks a lot for your time. Thanks a lot, Dylan. Hardware to Save a Planet is brought to you by Synapse. To find out more about us and how we develop hardware solutions for the world's most ambitious companies, head to synapse.com. And then make sure to search for Hardware to Save a Planet in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere you like to listen. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Synapse, thanks for listening.